All right, good morning, everybody. So welcome to our second week in our series on the book of Daniel. To get us started, I'd like us to look at a really remarkable photograph. You might have seen this before. It's probably a little hard to make out, but is this familiar to anybody? Um, if you can't make out what you're seeing, this is a large group of people in Germany in the 1930s giving the Nazi salute with their uh, right arms. Uh, and more specifically, this was taken on June 13th, 1936 at the Blom and Voss shipyard in Hamburg at the launch of a new German military vessel. And uh, Adolf Hitler was likely present when this new vessel was introduced. And if you look closely, you'll see that there is one man who is not going along with the crowd. Uh, where that red box is, let's zoom in here. Uh, as you can see, this man stands defiant. Uh, although he's surrounded by men and women with their right arms outstretched, his arms are very consciously folded in front of him, right? Uh, refusing to pledge allegiance to Hitler and the Nazi party. Now, I did some research on this photograph this week to try and figure out, do we know who this is in this picture? And the truth is, no one knows absolutely for sure. But there's really two proposed identities. And the first one, if you Google this, this will be the most likely result you get, is uh, a man named August Landmesser, who uh, fell in love with a German, uh, Jewish woman and uh, then married her and then had his family ripped apart by the Nazi party. So you can understand why he might stand defiant uh, when he's supposed to salute. Uh, but more recently, evidence has come out that this probably isn't August Landmesser because August didn't actually work at the shipyard in 1936. He worked later. And uh, that leads us to the second, and I think more likely, identity, which is a man named Wegert Gustav. And uh, Gustav's son, when he saw this picture, when it first came out in the mid-90s, uh, he thought he recognized his father in this picture, and he knew that his father worked at this shipyard. And I found something written by uh, Wegert Gustav's son, and he says this, My father's behavior in the Nazi era fits exactly with the man in this photo. Both my father and my mother, as well as many friends and also a shipyard colleague, told me again and again that my father never raised his hand for the Nazi salute. He had made it his habit from the beginning because of his aversion to the Nazi regime. If someone greeted him with a Heil Hitler, he answered with a simple good day. And his son says that he went by the motto, you should obey God rather than people. And he also says that his father was a devout Christian who refused the Hitler salute out of religious conviction. And uh, there was some photographic evidence that I found that showed what Wegert Gustav looked like about 12 years after this photo was taken. And it definitely looks like this very well could be uh, the same guy. So I think the evidence favors uh, Gustav over Landmesser. And if so, this defiance here is a reflection of devotion to God, right? 
But whether it's Gustav or Landmesser or somebody else, I think we can all agree, this is an awe-inspiring and incredibly remarkable show of defiance, right? Because it shows someone standing up for what's right even when there is enormous social pressure to do the opposite, right? It shows us someone refusing to go along with the crowd even though that refusal could cost him his life. The Nazi party did not tolerate dissent, and yet he dissents. He folds his arms and he silently declares, you can't make me. You might kill me, right? but you can't make me. You can't make me bow down to Hitler and the Nazi party. That is awe-inspiring conviction. And this morning, we're going to read in the book of Daniel a story of similar awe-inspiring conviction. If you have a Bible, open up to Daniel chapter 3. This is where we left off last week. And just to set the stage, if you did miss the message last week, uh, the context here is that uh, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, has attacked Jerusalem, besieged it, and then taken from Jerusalem some of the brightest young men. And he is uh, trying to get them to assimilate into Babylonian culture. And uh, Daniel was one of them, and also three friends of his who have been given Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the story we're going to look at focuses on those three friends. So, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And this is, a, this is a long stretch of scripture we're going to read, but it's a great story. I don't want to leave anything out of it, so uh, let's try to focus our attention. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. 
Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, my command, right? And were willing to give up their lives rather than serve our worship or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar thought that that should apply to him ten minutes ago, right? <laughs> uh, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So that's the story. So... Like the man in that photo photograph, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to salute. Right? They refused to bow down and worship anything other than the God of Israel. And I want us to look again, uh, narrow in on their moment of defiance. Their moment where, like that man, they were arms folded. Verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. 
and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And what I want us to notice is that they declare three things, right? They declare God can save us. They declare we think he will save us. But it's the third declaration that I find the most remarkable. The third one is, even if he does not save us, and even if we knew that he wasn't going to save us from the furnace, we will not bow down to your gods. That third declaration reveals a kind of faith that does not make sense to most people. Because for many people, and I'm not point, pointing fingers here, I'm just saying, for many people, the whole point of faith is to gain favor with God so that you can have a long and comfortable life. This is the whole point, right? Why do I have faith in God? Because I want to have a long and comfortable life. How do I get it? Well, I gain favor, favor with God. I, I put my faith in him. And if that's all that faith is for us, then the moment that it costs us anything, the, mo the moment that it leads us to discomfort, we have no reason to hold on to it, right? The moment it leads us to a fiery furnace, we abandon it, we turn away. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their faith is not just a tool for guaranteeing a long and comfortable life. Their faith is more than that. That's why they're able to say, even if this furnace is going to kill us, we're not going to bow down to your gods. And this morning, I want to challenge all of us, including myself. I mean, this is a hard message, but I don't know anywhere else to take this scripture passage than where I'm going today. Okay, I want to challenge us to ask ourselves the question, is my faith anything like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's? Or is it really just something that I have in my life because I want to gain favor with God and have a long and comfortable life? Back in 2005, uh, two sociologists, Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton, they released a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And for their research, they interviewed about 3,000 American teenagers. If you do the math, those kids would now be in their late 20s to mid-30s. And as they asked these kids about their religious and spiritual beliefs, there was this common pattern of beliefs that started to emerge. And they gave a nickname to this pattern. They called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, what is that? The essence of moralistic therapeutic deism is this. There is a God who created the world. God wants you to be a, you know, basically nice and moral person. The point of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. And faith in God and religion is supposed to be therapeutic. It's, it's a means of helping you to feel better about yourself and to be happy. And the research indicates that Christian kids of this age range, uh, this is what they are getting out of their church experience. This is what they are learning about God. This is what is being communicated, whether it's intentional or not. 
Now, this is not all wrong, right? Moralistic therapeutic deism, what, that list is not all wrong, okay? It is true that there is a God who created the world. It's definitely true that that God wants you to do good. Uh, it's also true that God wants you to enjoy your life. If you were here for the Ecclesiastes series, you might remember that was the way that that concluded, that the part of the message of Ecclesiastes is that we have a moral obligation to make the most of this gift of life that God has given us. And it's also true that faith can have therapeutic effects in our lives, for sure. I mean, when we learn to see ourselves as children of God, beloved by Him, people whose souls are kept secure in His keeping, that can be an incredible source of joy and peace, and that can be profoundly therapeutic. Okay? But moralistic therapeutic deism is incomplete. The kind of faith that Scripture calls us to is something sturdier, something deeper, something more profound than this. Because moralistic therapeutic deism is never going to say, even if you throw me into that furnace, I'm not going to bow down to your gods. Moralistic therapeutic deism is going to say, I can't follow God if it means getting thrown into a furnace. That would not be good for my well-being. That would not be therapeutic. That's not good self-care. You know, I, I, I need to bow down to whatever I need to bow down to in order to be healthy, happy, and safe. See, moralistic therapeutic deism can't tolerate suffering. It can't. It only remains faithful to God so long as God prevents suffering. And if that's the kind of faith that you have, if you're living in Germany in the 1930s and everyone around you is giving the Nazi salute, you're not going to be able to keep your hand down because doing that would just jeopardize your comfort and your safety, right? Now, fortunately, I don't think most of us are ever going to be, be put in a situation like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where following Jesus means putting our lives on the line. It's possible, but it's unlikely. But if we're following Jesus, eventually, we are going to be led to some furnace of some kind. And we'll have to choose. Will I endure this furnace or will I submit to the false god? Will I bow down? So let me give, me, give some concrete examples here. Um, let's say you're trying to succeed in business, but your competitors are all doing unethical things, right? They're cutting corners, they're being dishonest, maybe they're mistreating their employees and demanding that they work 24-7, maybe they're even doing things that are harmful to the consumers, and you might feel like, if I don't do the same things as my competitors, I'm not going to be able to compete in this market, I'm not going to be able to survive, I'm not going to be able to have prices that make a profit, I'm, I'm just not going to make it. And you might be right. Right? And so you, you have a choice to make. Am I going to follow God or am I going to bow down to the idol of self-preservation? You know, you can go into the furnace or you can bow down to the God of profit. What's your choice? And what the world needs is men and women of conviction 
who say something like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who say, you know, if I follow ethical business practices, I believe that God can preserve my business. And you know what? I believe that he probably will preserve my business. But even if he does not, even if my business goes under, I'm not going to bow down to the idol of profit. Here's another example. Uh, let's say you're single and you're lonely and you crave intimacy, but you feel like there aren't a lot of good options out there for a marriage partner. And maybe you have this idea, you feel like you're running out of time to, to find somebody. So you feel like you're facing a furnace. And so you're tempted to do a few things. One, you're tempted to find physical intimacy outside of marriage, which is an incredibly common choice in our culture, but not God's will. And second, you're tempted to consider marriage partners who don't share the same values as you, right? You're tempted to lower your standards. You're tempted to entangle your life with somebody who doesn't even care about following Jesus. So you are facing a furnace. And so you have a choice to make. Are you going to trust God and go into the furnace, go through the furnace? Or are you going to bow down to these desires that you have? And again, the world needs men and women who will say, if I limit my options for a marriage partner, and if I commit to celibacy before marriage, I believe God can still bring me a spouse. And you know, I think he probably will bring me a spouse. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow down to this desire to find intimacy outside of God's boundaries. I won't do it. One more example. Politics. Now, I doubt many of us have any plans to run for office uh, anytime soon, but if you ever do, please keep in mind what I'm about to say here. There is a ugly kind of self-interested pragmatism. That's that's how I describe it, an ugly kind of self-interested pragmatism that has deeply infected American politics. And that attitude can be summarized as this. If you're going to win office and you're going to keep office, you have to compromise principles. You have to, right? You have to be dishonest sometimes. You have to insult the right people at the right times and be nice to the right people at the right times. You cannot be guided first and foremost by principles. If you're going to gain office and keep office, you have to be guided by the opinions of your base or by the interests of the people with the money or by the interests of your political party. You, you have to play a game. You have to play the game. And what the world needs is politicians who will say, I'm not going to play the game. I won't bow down to the idol of self-interested pragmatism. I refuse to accept that the ends justify the means. I will be honest. I will be principled. I will treat people on both sides of the political aisle with respect. And I'll do these things even if they're not popular, even if they put my office in jeopardy. When I make mistakes, I'll apologize, even if some people see that as a form of weakness. The world needs politicians who will say, even if I refuse to play the political game, 
God can help me to succeed. I believe God will help me to succeed. But even if he doesn't, I will not compromise what is right. I will not bow down to self-interested pragmatism. Now you might respond, but no one can succeed that way, right? They will just get eaten alive. They have to play the games. People have to play the games. But see, it's that attitude that perpetuates the problem. That is the problem right there. Do you really want to live in a world where everyone thinks that? Do you want to live in a world where no one is willing to face the furnace? A, a world where no one is like the man in that picture. A world where no one is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't want to live in that world. I want to live in a world where there are people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I pray that I can be like them myself. But how? <laughs> how, how can we choose to face our furnaces even if we don't know for certain that we're not going to get burned? How can we face our furnaces if we're, we can't be certain that we're not going to get burned? Well, what we need is something that moralistic therapeutic deism lacks. We need the realization that the best thing we can have is God himself. Not just the gifts that God gives, but God. Real faith, the kind of faith that scripture calls us to, is the kind of faith that serves God not just to gain something, but because God is good. Right? Because knowing God and following God is a reward in itself. And if that idea just sounds totally crazy, I don't really know exactly how to communicate it. But if you've experienced that feeling at all, of the treasure of knowing God, then you know what I'm talking about. It's something that gives us power to transcend the worst of circumstances. What we also need to realize is something that this story illustrates so beautifully for us, which is that God goes with us into the furnaces that we face. Three men go into the furnace, but Nebuchadnezzar sees that four men are inside because one of them represents the presence and the protection of God, right? Whenever our faith leads us into something like a furnace, God doesn't just abandon us to experience that alone. God meets us in it. And the irony is that sometimes if we're not in the furnace, we don't, we're not experiencing God. But it, it, when it, it's when we're willing to follow him in there that all of a sudden he is so real to us. But maybe what we need to realize most of all is that God himself has already gone into the worst furnace for us. God became a man, Jesus Christ, and Jesus faced the furnace of crucifixion and of torture, the furnace of carrying all the world's sin on his shoulders, and he wanted a way out. You know, just like many of us want a way out of any furnaces that we're facing, and he prayed to the Father, if there is some way, take this cup away from me. If there's some way, some other way, Let's do that. <laughs> the Gospel of Luke says that as Jesus thought about that furnace ahead of him, he was in such anguish that his sweat was like drops of blood coming off of his forehead. 
but he still went to that furnace. He still refused to bow down to any idol. And because Jesus faced the worst furnace, we can have confidence that any furnace that we face cannot destroy us. I'll say that again. Because Jesus faced the worst furnace, we can have confidence that any furnace we face cannot destroy us. Because Jesus endured his furnace, he conquered sin, death, and the devil. And that means we can have confidence that no matter what happens to us, our souls are safe, our salvation is secure, our ransom has been paid. No matter what the world throws at us, no matter how hot the furnace is, ultimately, we are okay. We're going to be okay. And when we really understand that, we have strength to face our furnaces rather than bow down to those idols. When everyone else is giving the salute, we can stand defiant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is such a challenging passage. And if the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just seems impossible or ridiculous to us, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know what it's like to have the, the strength to stand defiant because of faith in you, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would understand a faith that goes beyond just trying to attain a long and comfortable life, but a faith that is, is rooted deeply in wanting to know you and experience you and recognizing that knowing you and following you is, is the, the greatest reward. And Lord, I pray that in our moments of weakness, we would remember that in the end, regardless of what we go through, if our trust is in you, Lord, we can have confidence that these furnaces will not burn us. They will not destroy us. For you have won the victory by going into the worst furnace of all. We thank you, and in Jesus' name, amen.